0: Well good morning. Do you know with all the fires this summer, I was thinking about if I got one of those calls and I had to be out of my house in five minutes, what would I bring? And uh, of course you get the kids, you get the animals, uh, maybe you run back for some photos or some documents, but if I had one minute left after that, what would I want to grab out of the house? One of the things for sure would be my great-grandfather's hunting knife. Uh, this knife was given to my dad in 1942. Uh, It says, to Harold from Grandpa Weaver, summer 1942. Who gives a 12-year-old a knife like that? (laughs) (laughs) I guess it was World War II, so, you know. Um, But my dad gave this to me. Fortunately, he didn't give it to me when I was 12. I probably wouldn't have all my fingers. But as a teenager, he gave me this knife, and I have had major adventures with this thing strapped to my side, backpacking, blood and guts, dirt, wood, rain, salt water, you know, lots of adventures with this knife. But as I got older, got married, the kids came along, the knife kind of found a place in the back of the drawer, and you know how that goes, you move a couple times and ends up in a box somewhere, and I kind of lost track of the knife, and I was cleaning out a desk that I was getting rid of about a year ago, and I found the old knife, and It was really deteriorated. The handle, the leather was all rotted off. And it was, was sad to say, you know, tarnished and getting rusty, dull. And I thought, that's not right, you know. And I was thinking about it. And the company that uh, built this knife originally is Coast Cutlery in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. And I thought, I wonder if that company's still in business. And I looked them up. And surely they are. And I said, you know, I have an old knife. If I sent it to you, would you restore it? And uh, they said, oh, yes, send it down. So actually, my dad brought it in. He said, I understand you have a lifetime warranty. This <laughs> is <laughs> actually my son's, but it's four lifetimes. Could you look after this? <laughs> I said, I'll pay for it, you know, all this stuff. But um, they restored it completely, and didn't charge us a thing. Beautiful work, brand new, oak handle, just unbelievable. But this knife is precious to me. It means something to me. It's not something I'm going to skin a deer with anymore. Uh, it has a place in my life that's a place that's special, it's valued. Um, it's not something I would use for common work. I have other knives that I would do for that. You could say it's set apart from a, for a purpose. It's a four-generation knife in our family, and look forward to passing it on someday uh, in our family. You could almost say this knife is holy. For those of you that don't like knives, you won't get that, but it's actually not a bad description of something like this because it helps us to understand this concept of holiness, and the Bible is filled with this concept of holiness. And really, all holiness means is something that's set apart for a purpose. It's not common. It's not tainted by sin. The Bible's full of illustrations of holy things in the Old Testament, temple utensils that were set apart for a purpose. They were holy. Priestly garments, That weren't used for any other purpose they were special Uh, the first fruits of the harvest which we would call the tithe they were holy they are holy from god there were holy places the holy of holies where only the high priest then went into the tent or into the into the tabernacle once a year there were jerusalem was a holy city for god so this concept of holiness is throughout the entire bible and it's really hard for us to get our head around in a world of disposable, quick throwaway kinds of things, but holy means set apart for a purpose. And today we want to look at one day in the life of Moses. Do you have a day in your life that you wish you could relive and do over? A lot of us have a day like that. I, I know that if Moses could do over one day, this day would be the day that he'd want to do over because Moses had to learn something about the holiness of God in a very, very costly way. Before we can understand that, we need to look a little farther back. Moses was an amazing person. There's sort of, th- his life kind of breaks down into three, he kind of had three midlife crises, if you want to say it. Uh, the first 40 years, he was a prince of Egypt, had everything that money could buy, great education, probably was martial arts trained, as the women would say. He was ripped, probably, good looking, had everything he wanted, all the future in the world, all the women he wanted. The first 40 years of life, he was riding high. And then, of course, he realized who he was, and there was this whole transformation, and he spent the next 40 years in the backside of the desert tending to sheep, not even his own sheep. Egyptians hated shepherds. It was the most despised thing you could do for an Egyptian. So here, a prince of Egypt ends up on the backside of the desert. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody cares who he is. He's taking care of this, you know, gross-smelling sheep of his father-in-law. But that wasn't the end of his life because God called him back. And in the third part of his life, in the last 40 years, he lived to be 120 years old, he led the people out of Israel into the promised land, the edge of the promised land. And he had an amazing life. He, understand, he understood God. God said, I speak to him as one who speaks face to face. He had a very unique relationship with God. And early in that second period, in, in that, when he was around 40 years old, Uh, I'm sorry, when he was about 80 years old, beginning to lead the people, they got out, they went through the Red Sea, and there was a time when they were in a situation where they desperately needed water. And we see that story in Exodus 17. You're probably familiar with this one. Um, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved out from the wilderness to sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. As Moses said to them, "'Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord?' But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. "'Why do you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?' So Moses cried to the Lord, "'What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me.' And the Lord said to Moses, "'Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go.' Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called that name place Massa or Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? An amazing miracle, um, water right from a rock in a desert to give sustenance to millions of people and livestock. Uh, So Moses was there that first time, but it's very interesting at the end of his life, after 40 years of wilderness wandering, after that entire generation died off and their children came up into the nation, this same thing happened again. There's two times that Moses was involved in this water coming from the rock, and it's the second one I want to focus on in this morning. We see that second story in Numbers chapter 20, verse 2. So this is 40 years ahead, 40 years after the first time, but the same problem. Now there was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together with Moses and Aaron, and the people quarreled. Would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness? We should die here, both we and our cattle. Why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There's no place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, tell the rock before their eyes to yield water. So you shall bring them water out of the rock and give them a drink, to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. and The water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Here's the kicker. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land I've given them. All his life, 120 years, God had prepared him for leading these people. He had just spent 40 years in the desert, bearing an entire generation. They were on the brink the second time of the promised land. Moses makes the biggest mistake of his life, and God says, you're not going to bring these people into the land. I wanted you to see how serious God was about that. In Deuteronomy 32, at the end of his life, God gave Moses a little peek at the land. Deuteronomy 32 48. Don't worry about Chainsaw Massacre outside, everything's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad image. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's okay. I have my hunting knife. We're good. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh, man. Stop while you're ahead. So here's the deal. God, made, God said to Moses, you won't, ent- you won't have the people. You won't bring the people into the land. And in, in verse 48, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up to this mountain of, of Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab. View the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for possession and die on the mountain on which you go up, and be gathered to your people, and Aaron your brother and Mount Hor will gather his people. Verse 51, Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. Another place in Scripture that this comes up is Numbers 27. Same situation, the end of his life. Numbers 27, 12, gives us some insight into what was going on here with God's decision. 27, 12, the Lord said to Moses, go up into the mountain of Ebrim. Again, you can see the whole thing, uh, the land, but you're not going to go in. In verse 14, because you rebelled against my word in the inn with inn con- when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the water's before their eyes I don't know about you but that seems pretty harsh to me this guy's given his whole life to leading this nation has faithfully led his nation the second time around to the promised land and he makes one mistake and God says you actually won't lead them into the promised land are you shocked sometimes and surprised by what God does I, but regularly when I'm reading the Word, I read the Word and say, well, that doesn't sound very godlike. This is me, the, the ant, telling the Creator, right? <laughs> Sometimes I, I'm a little shocked by God. There's a few things I wouldn't mind taking the Sharpie to in the Bible because they don't seem very God-like to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? But I've learned in those situations now to slow down and learn something new about God that I didn't know. It's easy to say, oh, God, pfft. What a joke. Any kind of God like that, I don't want to serve that God. No, I used to do that as a younger person, but now I say, no, wait a minute, all this is revealing is that I don't see everything about God that I thought I saw. And Lord, I need to bring into line my view of who you are. You don't need to conform to who I think you need to be. So what do we do in these situations? This does seem harsh. I think there's three reasons why this was such a big deal to God. The first is this. And we see these revealed in Scripture. In the Numbers 20 chapter, God said, because you did not believe in me. In this situation, Moses didn't believe in God. Sometimes we feel like we need to help God out and add a little extra to his instructions. Do you know what I mean? God plus a little of my effort, right? He said, you didn't believe in me, so you needed to add something into the deal. You feel like you needed to help me out to get this thing done right. Moses spoke to the congregation. God didn't ask him to do that. little added touch. I thought I'd just put in there, God, to help you out. In Psalm 106, looking back at this event, the psalmist says, Moses spoke rashly with his lips. He struck the rock twice. And God's instruction was the second time, just speak to the rock. You don't need to strike it. Just speak to it. And yet Moses puts this show on of these two strikes in the rock. A um, little extra human effort couldn't hurt, right? A little more theatrics. And it kind of makes sense in a way. I mean, he struck the Nile, right? He, he, he raised it over the, the, over the ocean and the and ocean parted, Right? The first time, the same gig, they needed water. He was instructed to strike the rock, and the water came out. I mean, we're on a roll here. Come on, right? And yet God did not say to strike the rock the second time. And Moses makes all this theatrics. I think we need to recognize this. God is infinitely creative, and we do not need to assume that he will do the same thing in the same way every time. I think sometimes we think God has Alzheimer's, you know? He's, we just think he just forgets what he's done before, and, and he's in this rocking chair in heaven, and, okay, Lord, this is obviously not what you, what's going on. I need to help you out and remind you of some things and maybe change things so that we can get the job done. God does not need our help in that. And Moses did not believe in God. Remember, when God provides instructions for us, they are complete And they do not require any additions from us. You think about Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. Things weren't working out so good with the whole producing the child thing with his wife. Ah, we got a great idea. Let's have a child through through her handmaiden. We're still feeling the effects of that decision to help God out. God doesn't need our help in that. And God said to Moses, in this situation, you did not believe in me as God amazing after 120 years of following. The second thing I think is revealed in the Scripture is this. We see this in the Numbers 27 passage. God said, "...because you rebelled against my word." In this situation, Moses rebelled against God's word. When you look back at Numbers chapter 20, which we read, is there any indication that God was mad the second time? Moses was definitely mad, and I can see why he was mad, this whole generation that had been raised up, all of the people that are the whiners that turned back the first time were dead, and now here's the kids doing the same thing that the parents did, which kept them out of the promised land 40 years before. I can see why Moses would be mad. I can see why he would be upset at them for whining about this water issue and all the things that God had done, providing man in the desert and protection from enemies. Their clothes didn't even wear out. I can see why Moses would be mad, but you know what? There's no indication from the Scripture that God was mad. I think Moses felt it necessary to do the work of God's vengeance himself. Moses, in his anger, lashed out against the physical embodiment of God's grace. Now, if your brain is not blown yet, hang on. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, In the New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul, looks back at this event and says this, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. I don't even know what to do with that. And yet Moses took his staff in anger and struck that rock twice, that rock which was Christ, the presence of God among them. According to Paul, pretty significant. That anger, I don't think that was God's anger. That was Moses' anger. Sometimes we try to put words in God's mouth. Have you noticed that? If you're angry, God's angry. If you're happy, God's happy. If you're doing good, God's doing good, right? Be careful about that. I always get nervous when someone says, thus saith the Lord. Mm, I'm glad we're a church where we don't say that much, you know, that thus saith the Lord thing because usually somebody's veins are sticking out when they say that, you know, and they're all angry and maybe not, Maybe God's not angry at all, uh, but they're angry so they need to project that onto God. Be careful about that. Sometimes we try to put words in God's mouth. Just because Moses was frustrated and angry does not mean God was Be careful not to create God in your image. Man, that's easy to do, right? I have a a warm and fuzzy thought about who I think God, the ultimate creator, should be, and therefore I'm going to create him in my image. When I run across other things in the Word of God that don't line up with my fuzzy little grandpa picture, I'm just going to ignore those in the Word of God. No, we don't get to create God in our image. God is God. He actually created us in his image. How backwards have we gotten that? Don't create God in your image. God is not like us. His ways are far above our ways. He's different than we are in every way. Even though we're created in his image, he's not like us. Don't put a human face on God. Why is it that God never allowed anybody to see his face? Moses said, Show me your glory. And God hit him, and you know, there was a little residue as he went by. Why is it that God has not allowed someone to see his face? We will see God face to face in heaven because we always want to put a human face on something, right? We want God to look like us, but be careful about that. God is God, He is not like us. Isaiah 55, 8, and 9 says, For my thoughts, this is God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Moses had rebelled against God's word, and he projected his own stuff onto God, and it came at a great cost. Here's another reason why God was so serious about this. We see this in the passage in Deuteronomy 32 that we read earlier. God said, because you broke faith with me. In this situation, Moses broke faith with God. What does that mean? Well, that phrase appears in a number of places in the Old Testament. It appears in Numbers 5, talking about a wife who is sexually unfaithful to her husband. She has broken faith with him. talks about the treachery of Israel when Israel forsook the Lord and ran after other idols. They broke faith with God talks about Achan's sin when he kept a little bit of the gold and hid it in the tent when they weren't supposed to do that. Achan broke faith with God in that. It's a serious thing when the Bible talks about that. And God said to Moses, you broke faith with me. I think one of the things that was going on in this situation was in this worst day of all of Moses' life, I think he tried to steal some of God's glory. That's so dangerous what did he say? Must we bring water from this rock? His brother Aaron, the high priest, and he were standing there. Must we do this for you? Now, that's not usual Moses talk. Moses was very humble and very meek. God, if your presence doesn't go up before us, I don't even want to go. That's, that's typical Moses. But at the end of his life, in the midst of the frustration with the second generation, making the same problems at 120 years old on the doorstep of the promised land the second time, Moses, I think, reaches out to take the glory. It's almost like he was reading his own press reports and said, must we do this? Like as there would be some way that Moses could make water appear out of a rock. And in his anger, he struck the rock. See, God is holy and he will protect his glory. This is hard to get your head around. But God is jealous for his glory. We don't we can't try to take God's place. I think God did not want that new generation believing that it was Moses that brought him into the land. It could have been easier for them. They had grown up seeing this amazing thing. You've seen the movie with the white hair and the whole, you know, stuff. (laughs) That's Hollywood. But that generation could have said, it's actually Moses that's brought us into the land. He's the one. And that's really what Moses did. Must we bring water from the rock? God said, no, no, no. I don't want you to confuse at all who brought you into this promised land. It's me, the living God, who's promised this land to your great, 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 great Abraham and who's me, who's cleared the land and brought you into it, not Moses. And when Moses made that mistake of trying to take on the glory of God and, and steal some of the glory of God, God said, no, that's it. You won't lead him into the land. God's jealous for his glory. Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord that is my name. My glory I give to no other. And my praise I will not give to carved idols. Wow. Is he like an egotist? Is God just like, you know, this OCD freak show that has to have all of the glory? No, God's not like that at all. I think the essence of this issue with God guarding his glory is that no other being or no other thing is worthy to carry that glory in all of the world, in all of creation. Because anything else we try to put that glory onto will disappoint us. A spouse, a job, a house, a car, a career, a a wonderful Bible teacher dude, you know, a guru. Whoever we we want to put that glory on, that person, that thing, that event will let us down every time. There's only one being in creation that's worthy to carry that glory is God. That's why God is so serious about not sharing it with us. That's why I think he was so why he was deadly serious about Moses, that I can't allow you to try to steal some of that glory because as that next generation goes into the land, if they confuse you with me, they will be let down every time. It was serious business for God. No other being or no other object is worthy of our praise. That's why God was so dead set against idol worship. It's like every chapter in the Old Testament, on and on and on. Why is it such a big deal for God? Because the idols won't save you. And in the 21st century, maybe we don't have carved wooden things sitting on our mantel places, but we still have idols, and God's saying the same thing centuries later. Those idols won't save you. They're not adequate. Only God is adequate of that. And I think God said, you broke faith with me because you tried to steal my glory, and I'm not gonna share it with anyone. It's pretty serious business. So those are three things I just think that God was up to, but I think there's something even more important than those three. Actually, I think there's something that overarches, an umbrella that goes over all of those three things, and, and here it is. Moses failed to treat God as holy. How do I know this? In all three of these passages, listen to what God says. Numbers 20, you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. Numbers 27, because you rebelled against me and my word in the wilderness of Zin, failing to uphold me as holy. Deuteronomy 32, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. Moses didn't treat God as holy. What does that mean? I think it means that he, he, he missed... He missed the perspective of who God really was. He started to treat God as ordinary, as something like you and I, you know? I hate Christian culture. You know, God is my good buddy. He's my co-pilot. You know, I see the bumper stickers. I want to scream. God is not your co-pilot, bro, (laughs) you know? (laughs) God is God. You're lucky that he's called out to you. I didn't find Jesus. I wasn't even looking for Jesus. Jesus found me. That's the God we're talking about. And when we start to see God in an ordinary way, we lose perspective on who he is. And he becomes small. He ends up in the back of the sock drawer as a common thing that we've lost perspective on. And I think that's at the heart of what was taking place with Moses. Moses just figured it's ho-hum, it's a regular day. Been here before, I know how to do this. I know the drill, strike the rock, we're all good. God said, no, no. No, no, you're not treating me as special. You're not treating me as holy. You're thinking it's ho-hum every day, and I'm doing it differently right now. I'm not mad at this generation like you are. you got to listen to me, Moses, and you got to see that I'm holy. What does it mean to treat God as holy? Man, I've been wrestling with this scripture. You talk to my wife. This has been a horrible week. (laughs) Poor Dina. She can't wait for tonight, you know? For weeks, I've been wrestling with this and saying, God, what does it mean in my life that I don't treat you as holy? In what ways have I seen you as mundane, God? What have I seen, how have I seen you as ordinary, as just like me? This is a big mistake. I know this is a sober word this morning, friends, but it's in the Word of God, and I think we've got to start to get a handle on the reality that we're talking about the God of the universe here. He's not our good buddy. Yes, he wants to have a relationship with us. Yes, he's closer than a brother. All this is true of the Word of God. But don't make the mistake of treating him not as holy. When are we prone to do this? Well, we can make the same mistake. I think when you look at Moses' life in this situation, I understand what happened. When are we prone not to treat God as holy? This is just practical warnings. When we're weary. Uh, You know, obviously Moses was weary 40 years. Can you imagine leading these clowns around in circles? You know? 2,500 funerals a day, or whatever it took to bury a couple million people in 40 years, you know, uh, he was just weary, and I think we get weary too. If you've been a Christian for a while, you can get just weary, of worn down, of doing good. The Scripture says, and be careful in those times when you're weary, because that's a place where sometimes you can make the mistake of not treating God as holy, not seeing God as holy, because the weariness just grinds you down. So watch out for those times. Be extra vigilant when you're weary to focus on God, to worship on God, to get your eyes back up on God. Yes, God, I am totally cooked, but help me keep my eyes on you because I don't want to make the mistake that you're weary (laughs) because he doesn't get tired. We get tired. God doesn't get tired. So be careful when you're weary. Um, Be careful when you're disappointed. It's interesting in this passage in Numbers 20, what took place right before that, his sister died. There was two brothers and a sister that were part of this gig from the very beginning. Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. And they, they must have been a great comfort to Moses. Yeah, I know there was that little rebellion with the leprosy, but, you know, everybody got over that. But it must have been a great thing to have the three of these siblings together in times of difficulty for those 40 years. And his oldest sister, Miriam, the one who had protected him in the basket, had passed away just then. And I think Moses might have been disappointed. I think there are times, if we're honest, that we get disappointed with God. Maybe there's a child that dies, or someone who dies before their time, or something takes place, and we just, we just think that it shouldn't have been like that, God. We prayed, and we fasted, and we, we, we anointed, we called the elders, we did all these things, and yet this person died. It's easy to be disappointed. Like, God, why didn't you show up? And I think maybe that's where Moses might have been. Like, here I am, 40 years in, and they're doing the same thing. And my sister's died, and I'm all alone. And Aaron's soon to die. Be really careful in those times of disappointment. It's so great to be honest with God. When you're disappointed and when things don't make sense cry out to God. Look at the book of Psalms. There's just, it's just full of stuff like, God, are you asleep at the switch? God, you got to wake up. God, you, you, know, we, we, you said you were good, but you're not. It's okay to be honest with God. But in the times of disappointment, be careful to keep your perspective that God is holy through that. And I have had to, in times of disappointment in my life, say, this does not compute. My life experience does not match my theology. It does not match what I see in the Word of God. But I'm going to choose to pick the Word of God and what I know is true about God. I'm going to hang on to that even though my life doesn't line up with it. But the experience of my life doesn't line up with it. I think that's the essence of faith. Faith is easy when everything makes sense. But when things are hard and things don't line up and it looks like God is mad and not paying attention and, you know, incompetent or whatever, be careful about those times because God is still holy during those times. And even though we don't understand, God gets it. There's nothing he misses. He's the God who sees. He sees everything, every injustice, every wrong done. He knows it all, and he will settle the score in the end. That's good news and scary news to some extent too, right? Nothing gets missed. So just be careful in times of disappointment um, to treat God as holy. I think the other time we're really vulnerable to this is is when our self-worth is in question. Have you noticed that? If you're wondering what your value is or what your contribution is or what your worth is, It's easy to lose perspective on who God is. Um, You know, guys talk about a midlife crisis. I think I've had three or four already. I can't claim it anymore because if I'm having a midlife crisis, I'm living to 112. So I guess that, I can't do that. But I remember around 40, you know, man, I was going to save the world and, you know, planted two churches and Mr. Cool and, and didn't quite work out. And it was like, really? I'm selling used cars in the armpit of Alberta in the back of a snowbank and no one, cares? No one asked me to write a book? <laughs> what is my worth? What is my value? Has God changed in the middle of that? No. My value is in Christ. I'm a son of God. And at the rock bottom of that whole thing, I had to say, you know what? I don't care if anybody ever knows who I am anymore. You know who I am, and that's enough. So watch out. Watch out when you're going through times of vulnerability. Don't turn your back on God when you feel like you're not worthy. Actually focus on the Word of God and see what a high value He places on you. Let your true identity come in Christ. Great, what what Michael said today. You're a Christian, and sometimes God allows those identities in our life to fall off so that we can see the only true one which is our identity in Christ. That's the glory of God showing up again. You see what I'm saying? Yes, my glory is in this. Well, that now, well, that didn't work out so good. Well, my glory is in this. Well, that, that bombed. You know? A glory is in this. Well, that went bankrupt. No. My glory is in God, because he is a glorious God, and he's a holy God. And in those times when I feel worthless, he sees me as worthwhile. So I think Moses was not. So be careful. I guess what I want to do this morning is this. I just want to remind us that there's nothing ordinary about who God is. He's not like us. He's magnificent. He's glorious. He won't share that glory with anyone. And my prayer is just in some way this morning that the Lord would descend And I just even want to just ask us to just bow our heads and our hearts just for a few minutes. I don't want to rush on here as we finish up this scripture. God, I I invite you now to descend upon this place. Lord, would you show us your glory? Come, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. God, I pray you'd reveal to us a measure of your holiness right now. Lord, for the weary this morning, show them your glory. Lord, I pray that they would have a fresh sense of your holiness and a reminder that even though they're weary, you are not, because you're God, and you don't get tired. Young men get tired, you don't get tired. So God, I pray for a revelation for the weary of your holiness and your otherness and your specialness right now, Lord. God, I pray for the disappointed this morning. I know that there are people here that are disappointed. It just didn't turn out like we thought it would. Lord, I pray for a protection for their hearts. Then in the midst of that sadness and that disappointment, maybe even that anger, because that's a fair part of the deal, they would not lose sight of your holiness. Lord, I pray for a fresh vision for the disappointed this morning, Help them to have a calm assurance that you are still seated on the throne. In light of this disappointment, you are still God. You are still sovereign. You are still good. Just renew the, the goodness of who you are in those hearts, Lord. You are not evil. There's no evil in you. You don't tempt us. You don't harm us. You're for our good. Pray for the disconnect in that disappointment, Lord, that they would look to you. Just raise your eyes to God and see God. Lord, I just pray for those that are wondering about their self-worth this morning. Maybe life has beat them up. Lord, I pray for a fresh vision of your holiness. Show them your glory, Lord. Remind them that you are the God who sees. If you feel like you're suffering alone and no one knows, that's from the enemy. That's not God speaking. That's the enemy. That's the devil speaking. Because God sees and knows you. And you're valuable enough for him to send his own son to die on the cross. He'd have done it for you. He did it for the whole world, but he'd have done it just for you. I believe that. You're that valuable. So, Lord, I pray you'd help us to find our true worth in you. All the other things will let us down. Lord, we look to you. We look to you. You are holy, God. We ask for your forgiveness when we, for the times we've treated you as common, maybe even this week. Just ho-hum. Business as usual. There's nothing usual about you at all. Thank you, Lord. Open our eyes. Open our eyes, Lord. Thank you, Lord.